Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Will Summer. Welcome to the Daily Beast's Fever Dreams. I'm a politics reporter at the Daily Beast, and I'm currently working on a book about QAnon called Trust the Plan for HarperCollins coming out later this year. And I'm Kelly Weil. I am also a reporter at the Daily Beast, and I'm the author of the book Off the Edge, Flat Earthers, Conspiracy Culture, and Why People Will Believe Anything. On this podcast, we're going to take you on plunges into the sometimes hilarious, sometimes scary fanatics infecting the way that millions of Americans view the world and how they vote. Even in the aftermath of the Trump administration, the energy of these conspiracy theorists, grifters, and influencers is still pushing our mainstream political landscape closer and closer to a breaking point. Welcome back to Fever Dreams. I'm Will Summer, and for the next couple of weeks, we're going to be joined by Andrew Carell. He was holding it down a few weeks back. Now he's returned. Andrew Carell is a senior editor at The Daily Beast. Andrew, welcome back. What's up? Thanks for having me. Wow, that was... <laughs> All right, playing it cool, working on your guest host persona. Okay, what's up? Yeah. Oh, we're, are we Sunglasses recording? come down from the ceiling and they appear in my head. Fuck life image. <laughs> All right, well, briefly, Andrew, I have to tell you, I went to Ocean City, Maryland over the weekend, and I got a big blast of boardwalk culture, something I don't necessarily get a lot in D.C., but we got a lot of novelty shirts out there on the boardwalk. And I have to say, things might be looking up for Joe Biden because I only saw five people wearing Let's Go Brandon shirts, two of whom were children, can't vote. So I think maybe the tide is turning in favor of Brandon. Six months ago, I was at Disney. My wife ran the marathon, and I was counting how many shirts I saw like that. There were a lot of Let's Go Brandon shirts, but also a lot of Punisher shirts with the Blue Lives Matter look. I saw so many Punisher shirts. That's a good point. That might be even worse. It's the Punisher with the Blue Lives Matter, the blue line, and then yes. Mickey ears on the Punisher. And a lot of people made those shirts and wore them at Disney. <laughs> but I guess Ocean City is a good approximation, a good comparison to Disney, where you see sort of normal people wearing their clothing out. And if you see less of those shirts, I guess it's a sign. This idea of the Blue Lives Matter, Punisher, Mickey Mouse. <laughs> The trope of the Disney adult, I think, has really been beaten to death online over the past six months, maybe. But like yeah. the Disney adult with like the Punisher flair, I think that may require some further exploration from sociologists. <laughs> A lot of contradictions going on there, yeah. So, Andrew, the big news, obviously, is the FBI raid on Mar-a-Lago. This is a fast-moving story, and I think we would be fools to try to hit on whatever the latest update is. But I think what's interesting here for us is the shifting narratives and the place that puts the right-wing media and Trump allies in. Because for me, one of the most interesting moments covering this beat comes when something looks really, really bad for Donald Trump, that even the most diehard partisans have to admit, well, this doesn't look good. And it's un- incontrovertibly bad. And then that's when kind of you sort of have like a placid lake and then someone throws a big rock in and then all the frogs and the snails, whatever, you can tell I'm really an expert on lake ecology. (laughs) They go flying, right? And that's the kind of the mood when things get interesting. And that's the moment. And then typically you have maybe someone like Sean Hannity or Tucker Carlson come out and establish what the talking points are going to be. Unfortunately, Tucker Carlson was on vacation last week. So it was a little more unsettled. So I thought we would run down the reactions and the lack of reactions from the right wing media, because I think this is always an interesting insight into how that world works. First, 
of all, I would love to get your take on how Fox News has reacted to all this, because I think it's pretty interesting. And you, of course, are a man coming who once was deep inside the belly of Fox News as a, as a former Fox News employee. So I think you have some special insights to share. Yeah, I mean, I worked there a decade ago. I think I've mentioned before on the show. Luckily, I wasn't on any of the true Fox News show. I was on a once-weekly Fox Business show, but I was on the same floor. So like I said, I used to hear like Bill O'Reilly screaming down the hallway. I had pretty good insight into what, how things were going on, what was going on over there. Or you would see Sarah Palin walking down the hall one day, and it was just like, oh my God. Anyway, so... You would say, wow, that's a future congresswoman. Yeah, future congresswoman. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, at the time, we thought maybe future president. I mean, 10 years ago, she was still relevant in that regard. But, you know, over the past week, it's just been interesting to watch the network because, I mean, I'm not watching it. I have people to do that now. But <laughs> I have a staff below me to do that. But Fox News is like... I think the day the raid happened, I think they finally found, and, and where Fox News goes is where a lot of right-wing media goes, as, as you were explaining before, and, and a lot of, it's sort of, the main talking points always rise to the top, and then Fox News sort of regurgitates that, and then it sort of spreads out and becomes the official word for a lot of people in right-wing media ecosystem. And it seemed like Fox News, after a year of sort of tiptoeing around, playing along with the bit, Trump's lies about the election, and just like obsessive talking about bizarre stuff that would come up in like a Dinesh D'Souza type world, just complete fabrications. Fox News had to avoid that because they were under the scepter of billion dollar lawsuits from Smartmatic and Dominion. And there's legal reasons why they can't indulge that bullshit. But all of a sudden with this, they found a cost free way of getting back into those that sort of red meat tossing to the MAGA world, because who's going to sue them for saying this is the Gestapo raiding Trump the day of the election. They were, I mean, the day of the raid, they were saying this stuff when the, when the warrant was served, they were saying this was, I think Steve Bannon called in a rare treat on Fox News called in and called it a, the, compared it to the Gestapo. The hyperbole on display was truly a sight to behold. It was just a lot of the Republic is over. It was weird to see a lot of Fox News people bashing law enforcement. Also kind of funny, but all of a sudden they, I think like Ben Collins said it yesterday, I think our friend and former colleague said that I feel like a lot of Fox News people and a lot of people in, in MAGA world think that they're living in this like spy novel where Trump is the only good person and everybody is bound to turn on him, including all the cops and all the even the Punisher. And so <laughs> they've started to shift the goalpost a little bit, which is interesting because I think you were saying as soon as they come up with an excuse for something or well, that's not that bad or he's not going to have the nuclear codes. And then a couple of days later, it said that the reports came out that he may have had the new what they were looking for was something related to nuclear codes. Then they were like, well, I was just kidding about that. Well, and then on Monday, Monday, some guy said this better be worse than the nuclear code. Yeah, yeah. That was the same conversation where Dana Perino a week before had said she really doubts there's going to be anything serious as the new codes. And then this week was like, in that same conversation with Will, I think it was Will Kane who said new codes aren't even that big of a deal. They're going to keep shifting it. But the funny thing about the reaction on Fox is just like the way that all of a sudden all these people started making it about the end of the world, sort of like the chaos you were describing on the lake with your, your expertise on lake ecology. I guess my favorite example was probably Jesse Waters, who is just a total clown. And I guess to show his serious the day that the warrant was served, just to show how serious he was, a teenage boy that finally discovered a curse word. He, he dropped a curse word on Fox News and said, this is third world bullshit and repeated himself because he was so excited that he got to say that. And then also that he was like finally being serious. This is, this is the end of the Republic. It's a banana Republic now. But I think they're slowly going to back away from that. I feel like you have Steve Ducey being like, hang on, guys, why don't we wait this out? Of all people, a co-host of Trump's favorite morning show is calling out the narrative saying like, wait a minute, why are we all of a sudden assuming that the law enforcement officials that served this warrant were not just like upstanding 
members of the FBI uh, who are doing their job. And why are we all of a sudden assuming that this was more nefarious than it? it may just FBI warrants are served all the time on regular people, which is one of the funny parts about the whole narrative from Fox News is like, if they do this to Trump, they're going to do this to you. But they, the FBI does this to normal people. They serve warrants all the time. It sort of seems like after the nuclear stuff came out and after the severity of these documents was described towards the end of last week, there's kind of been a tactical retreat, which is sort of like, all right, let's like maybe hold our fire here until we figure out what exactly how deep Trump has pulled us all in. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like we're seeing the kind of this broader pushback. I even saw Laura Ingram going off on Christina Bob, Trump's lawyer. This has moved into this angle of like, I think one of the weirdest narrative arcs of this whole saga. And like suddenly like these things are just flying really fast, right? It's like the passport thing one day. It's this idea that Trump is trying to lower the temperature is the now new thing. And I, I find that very odd where they're saying like a guy who's like talking a lot of trash at a bar. And then when someone goes to punch him, he's like, hey, I'm just a little guy. <laughs> like, come on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this idea of like, like, all right, Merrick, me, Donald Trump, look, I'm a guy who's devoted to keeping things chill. So let's all calm down. But in this case, we had Laura Ingram just saying, like, what the heck are you talking about? Yeah. And I mean, she was politely grilling Christina Bob, but enough to raise eyebrows where it's, I will say, just from an analysis point of view on this, before the raid happened, before they served the warrant, Fox News was already kind of, there's been a debate in media watching and media reporting circles as to whether Fox News is, was like slowly backing away from Trump and therefore trying to lead MAGA land into sort of like, hey, we got this new guy for you over here who's pretty cool, Ron DeSantis. Well, I was just going to say, I've watched Ron DeSantis speak recently. Like, have people seen this guy talk? He's charmless, yeah. I know I'm kind of late to the game on this. And, and I think I mentioned this before about seeing someone like Tom Cotton talk. But like, people must be nuts if they think he's going to be the presidential candidate. No way. I think it's just because of the own the libsery he inspires. And also because he kind of does and says the right things for people that notice all the people that are like slowly inching towards him that really want him to be the future, but are not openly saying because they don't want to piss off Trump. You notice that a lot of them are the people that in 2020, 16 were clearly very hesitant about Trump, were very Ted Cruz types, and Ted Cruz is similarly charmless, but they were very into that, like, I'm a principled conservative who also does like to own the libs. And then Trump came around and they had to shut up and pretend to grovel to him for how many years. And now they believe the, the shtick, but also I think they're now seeing an opening to sort of move away. And I feel like Ingram grilling Christina Bob, it's not a sign of anything that huge other than I could see them wanting to sort of like get move away from this raid conversation quickly so we can get back to what really matters, which is owning the libs in Florida, stopping the woke critical race theory from being taught in our schools and get back to the culture war stuff that really plays well. And Fox News was dining out on that for the past year. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I mean, that's the stuff the listeners like to hear. I think the viewers, I think when you have a case of like, kind of we're spinning bad news for Trump, that's less fun than you'll never believe what libs of TikTok found next. Yeah, exactly. So moving on from Fox News, there's another media outlet that I think was in some interesting spotlight here over the weekend, which was a Breitbart. Now, yeah. Breitbart, there was a point, there was a time in 2016, 2017, when Breitbart looked like it would be the new blue chip media company. This was going to be the new face of American media. It was just going to get all these scoops from the Trump White House, whatever. Matthew Boyle was going to be the new Helen Thomas of the White House press corps. But what happened instead, and I'm sure there's like a lot of machinations that happened that I'm not aware of, but basically Breitbart became pretty quickly irrelevant because they failed to get these kind of fed scoops from the Trump administration that I think we all thought they were going to get. I think instead those scoops went to John Solomon or the Wall 
Wall Street Journal opinion section or to mainstream media outlets. And so Breitbart has kind of been sidelined for a while. But interestingly, they got, along with the Wall Street Journal, they got the copy of the search warrant before a lot of people did, presumably given to them by the Trump team. And the ways that they like fumbled the scoop here, I think really demonstrate that like there's no like certainly Breitbart in no serious way aspires to be an actual media outlet. So they get, okay, okay, we got we got the scoop of, scoop of the month, maybe the scoop of the year, gang. All right, what's the thing we're going to write about? It took like five days between when the warrant was approved to when it was executed. We're not going to list what the charges are. We're just going to say, why did Merrick Garland take so long? This guy's bumming around. So they didn't list any of the crimes initially, because obviously that wouldn't make Trump look good. Then they said, Oh, well, he's under investigation for Section 793, and they say, which deals with defense information. Yeah, because it's the Espionage Act, right? I mean, so they really downplayed it. And then after that, after everyone said, wow, Breitbart blew the lid off Trump. This looks so bad for Trump. Then Matthew Boyle updates six minutes later, and he says, all of this is technically irrelevant anyway, because Trump can declassify whatever he wants. So this is Breitbart. is like, why did you give us a scoop? This is such a pain in the neck for us to deal with. Right. They've always wanted sort of a little bit of mainstream acceptance where they'll, they'll get like leaked documents. But like normal outlet would vet the document, which everybody did easily when you get an affidavit from law enforcement, but also like post the full thing. (laughs) And clearly they didn't do that. In the interest of reporting, they just cherry picked the stuff that was interesting to them. They have to dance around. They're kind of like shifting it for gold to see like the only stuff that makes Trump look good. It gives away the game in the way they presented it. It gives away the entire game. Exactly. Exactly. It's kind of these moments that that throw that into relief. The other thing I would say about Breitbart and the kind of the large right wing reaction to this is so Breitbart also sort of covered itself in ignominy here by reporting the names of the FBI agents who were on the warrant. And that's related to, I think, the right wing obsession with the judge who signed off on the warrant. This Judge Reinhardt guy. Now, there's just some random guy who signed a warrant. He donated to Democrats sometime. He donated to Jeb Bush, which, despite being a Republican, is seen as being an anti-Trump thing. And they have become obsessed with this judge and perhaps soon these FBI agents to the point of, like, digging up an old picture of him with a bottle of booze and some potato chips from, like, 2017, where he's like, ooh, I can't wait to watch the big game. And they're like, this is a drunk judge. (laughs) This guy's out of control. They photoshopped that into a picture with Ghislaine Maxwell because he also represented Epstein's employees, Jeffrey Epstein's employees, a long time ago. And so they photoshopped that into it. It was a meme going around of him photoshopped into an image with Lane Maxwell massaging his feet, which was originally Jeffrey Epstein on the plane. And then it ran on Fox News. But yeah. Yeah. And and so I think there's a larger takeaway here from that treatment of everyone kind of involved in this enforcement, which is raising the stakes for people to individually be involved in any kind of law enforcement activity or any scrutiny of Trump world, which is by saying, oh, gosh, do you really want to indict Donald Trump? Do you really want to do the, do a raid on him? Because we're going to really go through your life in much the same way we saw with the Russia investigation, where famous FBI lovebirds and so on and so forth. And in, similarly in their treatment of reporters, where they anyone who writes something they don't like, they're, they're going to kind of cook up some bad faith attack against you. So I think, and in the case of the judge, I believe his synagogue had to cancel services because of threats against him. That's right. Yeah, a lot of anti-Semitic attacks specifically, but those always seem to come out when anybody involved in an anti-Trump thing is Jewish. But Terrible stuff. Well, we will certainly be keeping an eye on this Mar-a-Lago raid and its aftermath. Andrew, can I move you over to the Fever Dreams Party Report? <laughs> of course. Bump-a, bump-a, bump-a. 
try to make a little party music. <laughs> okay, so here's the deal. So for several weeks now, the world of sort of like, let's say people who maybe wouldn't get an invite to Mar-a-Lago, but the people who are kind of like diehard election fraud sleuths, kind of a smattering of QAnon people, have been the, sort of the leading lights of the Trump online grassroots, have been anticipating an event in Scottsdale, Arizona, that is somewhat inexplicably called The Pit. And so this <laughs> is an event put on by a guy named Greg Phillips, who is a the star of Dinesh D'Souza's 2000 Mules. He runs True the Vote, which is the group that supposedly tracked down the mules and proved the election fraud. Now, Greg is kind of an interesting guy, a little side sidebar about him. I mean, he used to be kind of like a minor t- state official in Texas. And if you look this guy up, he looks like he might have been a dad at my like high school football games in Houston. Does not look like a tier one Navy SEAL operator. But sort of since 2000 Mules came out, he's grown this massive beard and he does a lot of like ominous talk about like the Patriot games are afoot. It's like his big slogan. Yeah. And, then, and so after 2000 Mules came out, Greg said, well, actually 2000 Mules is kind of crap compared to what, I, what I'm really working on, which is a nice thing to do to a guy who made a movie about you. And he said, I have something 10 times bigger than 2000 Mules and it's, I'm going to pull the ripcord. And he kept saying, pull the ripcord. And it's sort of similarly to Sidney Powell saying, release the Kraken. He was saying, the ripcord's coming. And so the pit was to be the event where the ripcord was pulled. I mean, how many how many mixed metaphors do we have here? And there was like a lot of drama about who got an invite to the pit. There was like this one QAnon guy I follow who claimed he was invited to the pit. And then Greg was like on Truth Social saying like, prove you've been invited to the pit. I mean, there was a lot of stuff. So so at the pit, they gather over the weekend. And the big announcement, and Philip Bump at the, the Washington Post has done a great write-up of what went down at the pit. But essentially, it was not a lot because this is finally, we're going to prove the election fraud. And if there's one thing I've learned from covering people like Jacob Wool, it's that when someone says, oh, okay, here's my big announcement. And then the announcement comes and you say, that wasn't really anything. They say, well, that's because the real announcement's next week. There's kind of these pre-announcements. They don't have anything. Any thoughts on this? It's just funny that they keep coming up with all these new events where they're going to reveal something big. And I don't really see the point of them anymore. It almost feels like as a former teenager who spent a lot of time on like fan forums and group forum and like RPG online games and talking to weirdos who get obsessed with something. It feels like a lot of this is just like, it's almost just fandom where it feels like in 20 years, a lot of people just want to say like, I saw Ario Speedwagon at the pit 1982, like the equivalent <laughs> of that. Like <laughs> I was there. Yeah, when- I was there. I, I was there when Greg Phillips pulled the ripcord. <laughs> yeah, even though he never did, but it was still magic, man. It's not clear what the objective is because, like, you either at this point you're all in, and and like these guys could literally they can reveal anything. They can say anything in absolutely insane. They can say like the ballots were manifested by the ghost of Hugo Chavez or something, and like or stolen or something. And these people would lap it up and be like, "I was there for that when they said that. I was for there for that set list. I got." And so like at this point, I don't. I just don't understand why they keep doing these events and who keeps showing up to them, other than just like diehard fans who are really. I don't. I don't know what the appeal is, other than maybe just an obsession with Trump and some sort of feeling of being wronged by the election outcome it's just it's fascinating so in fact it gets even stranger because so he pulls the ripcord and it turns out the ripcord is just a website with the 2000 mules raw footage that's not even available yet but hey big surprise here if you pay greg some money maybe you can get the final proof of election fraud but basically it's a link to a a website that basically does not exist and is sort of still under construction but that didn't stop the after party from going down so the the gang heads to the hotel valley ho in scottsdale arizona which is kind of one of these like kind of mad men looking type hotels and but the party we got some QAnon guys we got some election fraud folks but the party 
comes to a grinding halt almost soon as it begins because greg mr patriot games himself gets up and says guys the hotel is kicking me out because i'm carrying a gun and so this then becomes this whole thing where the hotel has to call the cops and of course these guys don't like their second amendment rights perhaps being infringed there's video of, of greg yelling at these hotel employees and all this stuff so Essentially, the pit came to a, an unfortunate end early, and now there's this whole movement. We got to cancel the woke hotel. Arizona Secretary of State Mark Fincham, or excuse me, Arizona Secretary of State candidate Mark Fincham, who is part of the sort of QAnon Secretary of State Alliance, he's now oh more like the hotel valley ho, more like the woke valley ho. Essentially, this is kind of a grab bag of weird stuff going down in the desert, I guess. But. For me, it's it's interesting because I think this kind of represents the phase where you were just saying, what's the point of this anymore? You've convinced huge swaths of the country, American elections don't matter, that they're being stolen. But in a way, I feel like this is the election fraud movement kind of moving on from 2020 because they had this kind of shambolic event. Even during this event, Greg Phillips and his gang got up and they said, hey, guys, we're moving on from 2020. We're focusing on 2022 now. Get over it. So it's time for the next grift for these guys. And so so I think they're kind of bearing 2020. And it's like they find no more need for new stuff anymore. And now it's it's time to look forward. Time to put out the next album and do the next tour. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. We're kind of we're redoing the image. Don't play the hits anymore. We got to move on. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So I'm very excited about this week's guest. Who do we have? All right, Andrew, this week we have Nick Lutzko. He's a musician. People may have seen his songs, which often go viral. He's got songs about going to CPAC. He's got songs about gremlins. Paralyzed nation. We're sick and depressed. Gotta keep myself together. Take a deep breath All because There may never be A Gremlins 3 He's got songs about Spirit Halloween This is the theme for Spirit Halloween Grab my whip and can't stop screaming Here's a thing about Spirit Halloween They got skeletons And I think most importantly for our purposes, he sort of sees talk radio host Dan Bongino as his muse. So I'm very excited to see Nick. I believe you saw him recently in concert. Do you want to expand on that? I'll say this much. It's a truly wild experience (laughs) as a big fan of a lot of artists that have built very serious communities around their music. And as as a musician who envies that, he's really built something remarkable in terms of just getting people to be super into very clearly like doom-pilled ironic music about like Don Jr. with like disgusting videos oftentimes like surreal almost gross out videos that he posts to Twitter that always go viral because they're just they're really speaking to the times there's a really cool thing that he's built they're very sweaty videos yeah he's always very sweaty in a basement yeah well I'm excited to ask Nick why he's inflicting this on all of us Fever Dreams, like all Daily Beast journalism, exists because of the generous support of our subscribers. The people who pay for access to Daily Beast reporting and who are, quite frankly, our favorite people on the face of the planet. Want to get in on all the action? Join now and get unlimited access to Beast reporting, exclusive ad-free newsletters, and our undying appreciation. Head to feverdreams.thedailybeast.com to sign up. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. 
PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Okay, this week on Fever Dreams, we're joined by Nick Lutzko. He's a musician with songs about all kinds of things, but most importantly, about Dan Bongino. Nick, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So, Nick, you've become famous for these these songs that I think kind of tap into the mind of kind of a crossover between our crazy political moment and the lives we lead on the internet. How did you get into this line of songs? Man, well, I have been writing songs. I went to school for commercial songwriting, but I mean, I've been in bands and writing songs since like I was a little kid and started doing it more seriously in middle school, high school. It was really tricky trying to find out how to like pave a lane for like a career in songwriting because I'm in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and where I went to school is just like not far from Nashville, Tennessee. And it was all just very like pop country. There's very much like a set formula, which I learned in school is essentially turn on the radio and repeat whatever you hear. And it was stuff that I just didn't really, I wasn't very good at it. I wasn't that interested in it. And I just kind of had to get creative with how I could make a living doing music. And one of the first ways I, like one of my first doors into this world of like political satire and comedy music was Tim Heidecker and Vic Berger were doing an election special at the RNC in 2016 for Super Deluxe. And as they were shooting this thing, they were doing a lot of like Facebook Live and like they were on Snapchat a lot. And I was just following along and I did an unsolicited 10 second theme song that I just tweeted at them and said, hey, I don't know if you guys need a theme song for this thing, but I went ahead and made one anyways. And they ended up liking it and using it. And that was my foot in the door at Super Deluxe. And from there, it was basically, hey, I'm trying to do this for a living. I kind of pride myself on being able to write in different genres. I can work pretty quickly. Like, basically, if you guys have any jobs that need music, like, I would be more than happy to do whatever, even though I wasn't necessarily qualified. And the producer at Super Deluxe said a couple weeks later, he was like, hey, Nick, Trump's tweets have been especially emo this afternoon. Do you think you could turn them into, like, an early 2000s emo pop punk song? And I definitely went through like my emo pop punk phase in middle school. So I had like the Blink-182 guitar in my closet that I hadn't touched in 20 years. And I pulled that out and I made the first like emo Trump tweet song in like 12 hours and got it back to them. And yeah, from there, we just kind of, we had a formula. We did a couple of the Trump tweet songs. And then from there, I I didn't know how to edit video well. I took some classes in high school, but I kind of pitched the idea of like taking his speeches and having like the video component. So then I started doing that. And then from there, it was like, okay, well, who else has an unending supply of crazy things that they've said on camera? So then the next logical step was Alex Jones. And we did the Alex Jones indie folk song. And I apologize if this was supposed to be like a short answer. <laughs> it's a very long winded. No, no, it's great. Well, Nick, I mean, yeah. Can you give us a taste? I mean, for folks who haven't heard it, what the Alex Jones folk song is. Cause I mean, you're essentially, you're making an Alex Jones rant sound like, uh, like Mumford and Sons. Yeah, pretty much for that one. Specifically, the reference was Bon Iver. And I actually, I picked, the idea, and I'm so glad we didn't do this, but I was like, what about Alex Jones as a metal song? The thought was like, that is just kind of is almost 
too obvious and it almost feels like it's emboldening these hateful things that he says and is what if we went the total opposite direction and just made it sound very sweet and delicate and like emotional and yeah we used that first bon Iver record as the template and it basically consists of me for about a week straight just combing through alex jones videos broadcasts and just keeping a word doc with timestamps of all the craziest things that I feel like have some kind of rhythmic or lyrical component to it. And then once I feel like I have enough, I just sit down with all of that and basically try to connect the dots and craft a song around these insane things that he says. As a fellow musician who's intensely fascinated and in love with what you've done, I have a lot of uh, thoughts. You know, you mentioned the Alex Jones sort of taking his lyrics and, and putting it, it would have been obvious to make it metal and putting it to more indie folk sort of sound. What I think is fascinating about your work, and we can sort of explain this for the listeners a little bit, some of your hits online are sort of just videos and songs that you've recorded that ended up on an album, but also you would film these videos and put them on Twitter and they blow up. And, you know, you've done one about a sort of lurking presence in our media bubble of a total meathead, loser, humorless, dolt Dan Bongino, but then also people like Don Jr., Jeff Bezos. And I think one thing about, and this is tying back to using indie folk as like for to sort of uh, subvert the expectations about Alex Jones is I noticed that these are all deranged people and sort of our deranged stage of, you know, I hate the phrase late stage capitalism, but you're sort of making fun of a lot of that stuff, but also it makes them seem kind of human in a way that like shows that they're deeply wounded people that are just hurting a lot of other people. I think the Don Jr. song, just to explain to the audience, you have a song that is him making fun of Hunter Biden, basically, but it's really talking about himself ultimately. Are you setting out to sort of human, not human, I'm not saying like you're doing PR for them and humanizing them, but you're showing like by subverting the expectations, you're not just, what are you trying to set out to do there? Man, that's a great question. The quick, easy answer is no, that none of that is deliberate whatsoever. I think with the songs on the computer, like I started doing that stuff for Super Deluxe and I carved out this very unique path for myself that's like when Super Deluxe shuts down, I can't just go get a job doing the same thing I was doing there somewhere else. So I was really kind of back at square one of like, okay, now what's my next move? And I tried for a little while to continue like using that formula of taking people's words and recontextualizing them and turning them into songs. And I was just really bored of it and didn't enjoy that anymore. And it's hard to continue doing something that you were paid to do for free. And also like, it's like, just the worst thing ever to sit there for 48 hours and listen to Alex Jones, as I'm sure you guys are aware. But I tried to for a, a while to try to do that. And then the thing that kind of broke me from trying to move forward on that path independently was I noticed that Chrissy Teigen had unfollowed me on Twitter. And around the same time that Trump had that clip where he kept repeating person, woman, man, camera or whatever. And I was sitting and trying to do something with that. And that's where, where I kind of had my breaking point of like, this is just so repetitive and there's nothing really new. I've, I've done this so many times at this point. And it was my bandmate that recommended, why don't you write a song about Chrissy Teigen unfollowing you? And I did it really quickly and put it out. And it was the first time I've really done this sort of work with my face attached to it. And it was really liberating realizing that I could do something quickly without really like making it this really strenuous, long process like I did with the Super Deluxe stuff or like I had done with my original non music, which sometimes it takes years to finally wrap the bow on the song and say it's done. And again, I'm rambling, but to get to the point, I kind of like use that first song that I did for Twitter as like a blueprint of, okay, I'm going to 
experiment with making these songs for Twitter specifically, where I am going to wake up and if I don't have anything to do that day, I'm going to decide what I'm going to write a song about and I'm going to write it, record it, shoot a video. And the goal initially was to post it online that day. And that's what I did for the RNC the Dan Bongino song you mentioned specifically, it's like I woke up, I think it was a Monday, RNC was trending. It was the first day of the RNC. I sit down and I write this song really quickly. I went with Dan Bongino just because it was like he has a funny sounding name. It's the right amount of syllables. He's a funny looking guy. He's a very humorless guy. Like there, all that to say, there really wasn't any, there was no subtext that I was really like, re- I really don't sit and get very analytical or philosophical with like what I'm trying to say. It's just trying to like, it's really interesting how I'll put something out and I'll hear people kind of talk about what I did and I'll realize that they're not wrong. And, but I was, it wasn't really intentional. It's just like this feeling that I'm just chasing and getting out as quickly as I can. So it often goes with art. Yeah, mostly it's the people interpreting it in a way that's like, oh yeah, I guess I was thinking that. But you're writing about a lot of people who are objectively very funny and they don't realize it. And I wonder if like, personally from, you know, I don't mean to gush so much, but I think like, I think there's no expiration date on a lot of these. Like I think in five, 10 years, you could show it to somebody who maybe isn't as familiar with like our extremely dumb era that we're in right now. And they would probably find parts of it funny, but are you worried that some of these things have an expiration date? Totally, yeah. That's something that like is, when I'm trying to, put something out like like I think the one of the most recent songs I did is about uh, the Joker 2 musical that's coming out. And in a way a part of the joke is like that I recorded and released and shot a video like within 12 hours of the news coming out like it's like but that joke you're right like it's not going to necessarily we'll see if it stands the test of time but I think my number one priority in every one of these songs is always writing a really catchy strong song as far as melody production everything else goes so that like even if like the content of the song people don't know what the hell i'm going on about a year from now they can still listen and enjoy and i think that's another song i did i'm a persecuted man was the one i did earlier this year and it's really just callback to almost every other song i've done in the quote-unquote songs on the computer series And if you're not following pretty closely, it just sounds almost like, I don't know, something off Blonde on Blonde, Bob Dylan just rambling. Like, I'm not trying to compare myself to the genius of Dylan. I'm comparing myself (laughs) to, like, the ridiculousness of some of those lyrics of, like, what is he going on about? Stream of conscious, yeah. Yeah, right. But I've had people reach out and they were like, oh, I heard that Persecuted Man song. And, like, what I was worried, it was like, okay, this is for the people that are all in, like, exclusively. And I'm kind of, like, recognizing that it's not for other people. And then kind of realizing that people heard it, had no clue what it was about, and then kind of had the surge of like, oh, I need to go back and really find out what I'm listening to. So yeah, everything is serves a different purpose. Like, where did the gremlins go? I think that's something that's like fairly universal, major problem in our society that needs fixing. <laughs> I will say, I briefly met you after your show at Bowery. I was, thank you for getting me to that show. Yeah. And that show, I think it was like a month ago or so, whatever it was, it was fascinating to see kind of what you're talking about with the sort of people that may not necessarily be in on the joke, find their way into it, where I just noticed there was a lot of like, 
dudes who were having an extremely good time partying with their friends. And every time a song came up, it wasn't like they were so excited to hear a song about Dan Bongino. It was like, these are genuinely like pop rock crafted songs. These are, some of them almost sound like 80s Springsteen in a way. And people were just genuinely excited to hear the songs. And there was guys, there were people who brought their girlfriends or or vice versa, who just didn't seem to be on on the joke, but they were super into it. And I think that's like kind of the secret sauce there. But do you think a lot about building community? Because I noticed there was a lot of people that were like kind of high-fiving when their favorite song came on. Like, have you thought about the sort of community you're building around the music? Yeah, I think it's just weird. It's it's very interactive in that like I'd been doing this for the first show we did was in April of this year in Chicago. And I started doing these songs, the computer things on Twitter in like the fall of 2020. So we're coming on two years of doing this. And the most crazy thing about playing these shows live is how many people came up afterwards and said something along the lines of the pandemic was like extremely tough and such a dark time. And these songs that you were putting out was like one of the few bright spots that like really kept us going. And it's like almost like embarrassing to repeat that because how silly these songs are like, but like, it's just bizarre how many people kind of shared this similar experience. And I do think a lot of the people in the crowd feel like they're all in on this big inside joke. And like, it is awesome and bizarre how this community has formed. And it's another one of those things. It's like, I could have never planned it. I could have never done this on purpose. It just sort of happened. And I can't really wrap up. I am a uh, reluctant deadhead. And it just reminds me a little bit of like, there was a part where you broke the Bongino, the RNC song slows down and it becomes a, you're singing Dan Bongino to the the melody of Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah. And the way the crowd sort of was like, oh no, he's doing that. And it was like, like they're getting Dark Star tonight or we're getting Dark Star into Morning Dew. Like it was very much like that sort of energy of just like, it's beyond the sort of like the content of the songs. It's almost like you are, which actually reminds me of a question is like, when you're writing the songs, are you thinking of melodies first and and then writing the lyrics to them like because they are like you said you try to think of a very catchy melody they are very catchy is that sort of the process for you yeah i think typically it, it's always song first yeah making sure that this is something that like is going to get stuck in someone's head or is interesting to listen to and isn't just the first most generic version of what the joke could be i think it all comes from being a musician and a songwriter first and foremost i was very reluctant to kind of connect my face to any sort of comedy driven material after super deluxe shut down just because i've had a, i to this day have a lot of imposter syndrome surrounding it just because comedy wasn't like what i set out to do it's just very much kind of fell into my lap and i enough people enjoyed it that i just kind of like finally admitted to myself like this is what people it's crazy to spend years laboring over a project and release it and not know if anyone is listening and then create this funny song and then all of a sudden have people buying your stuff and wanting to come to your shows and it's like it's hard to ignore that green light and so in a lot of ways yeah, it's been a way to like one of the coolest things that continues to happen as well is people talk about how like they really like this funny songs on Twitter, but then they went back and listened to the other stuff and they fell even more in love with that stuff. And I, I think there's very much a common thread between all of that. I wrote this record I put out in 2019 called Swords. As far as like the subject matter goes, it's all about the same stuff. It's my reaction to like the Trump era. And like I wrote it like at the end of 2016 up until probably the end of 2018. And it just is missing that comedy element. And I I told myself whenever I finished that project, like I want my next album to be more fun and more uplifting because it's a really kind of dark brooding record. And then 2020 happened and things just continue to get darker and darker and darker. And I didn't see there 
being a way to just kind of turn that off and just kind of start writing happy pop songs. And it wasn't until after the fact that I was doing songs on the computer that I realized I'd kind of found a way to write fun, happy songs that are pretty much about all of the same things as far as like the awful state of the world. Nick, another thing is we've got to address the sweatiness. <laughs> In your music videos, you're often just like dripping, dripping, dripping with sweat, like the sweatiest person I've ever seen. What's going on there? What's the behind the scenes? What are the practical effects at play? And what are you embodying when you do that? <laughs> right, right. So it's funny, like that's something that like during the start of the pandemic, I did a couple short, very dumb videos that weren't even music related. It was really just seeing it was probably my first instinct response to how mad people were getting about things shutting down as coronavirus was plaguing literally plaguing the country and i like had i just rubbed vaseline on my face and i had like a little electronic steamer and got myself very wet and i was coughing a lot and i was just doing like my version of that guy who doesn't want things to shut down and doesn't want the movie theaters to shut down and wants to go to there's a local uh nightclub in Chattanooga that actually shut down like 10 years ago called Raw, but he's really upset that Raw isn't open. And anyways, it was just this guy that I'd kind of done a couple videos just because I felt like I needed to get that off my chest somehow. And then, and then when I started making these songs, I think the RNC video is the first time where I busted out the steamer and the Vaseline just because it seemed like that guy it would be the same guy, the same guy who'd be so upset about the movie theaters shutting down and that his late night talk shows don't have the studio audience would be the same guy that would get so excited to go to the RNC and see Patricia McCloskey and get a chance to rub elbows with Dan Bongino. And then from there, like I kept doing these songs and like the whole grandma's basement element was me literally just looking around my basement and <laughs> using it as a character. It's like, okay, here's a creepy staircase. Here's the random toilet that's just built in the center of the basement and has an American flag hanging over it. And it's like, it's almost, <laughs> I'm just writing what I see. It was just funny seeing how, and you talk about like the community. I guess that was the first kind of like shrivel of evidence of that is like seeing people like want to know more about grandma. Like what's going on with grandma? Why does she have a man under her stairs? And then it's like the next song I do, I don't, it was Boat Parade and it's missing grandma's birthday. And then like, the more, even though there are these little tiny throwaway things, the more times I've mentioned grandma or whatever connective tissue, the more invested people get. And like, eventually there was a bigger picture, but at the time I didn't have any blueprint of where things were heading. It was just song on a song by song basis. How can I take this whatever current event and then put my own bizarre little world that I'm creating into this song I'm, I'm making yeah well speaking of bizarre little worlds i feel like a place where a lot of folks might have encountered you were your spirit halloween songs and for those who perhaps don't have a spirit halloween in their community there are these kind of fly-by-night halloween stores that appear in big box stores that have been shuttered so you have this kind of theme song for them that that makes this larger point about amazon destroying all these businesses as well are you excited for halloween what was that journey like i mean the song kind of climaxes in i mean ultimately i think in an apocalypse but at one point all the monsters attack you and you ended up sort of linking up with Spirit Halloween. I think your sort of memification of them has sort of played a role in the fact that there's now going to be a Spirit Halloween movie. Spirit Halloween movie, yeah. Well, yeah, man. It was just really funny. I don't know why I had been... I already had all this footage of me in Spirit Halloween being frightened, overly frightened, the animatronics. For some reason, I didn't know what I was going to do with it. But like, I was just fascinated by... The whole world is shutting down, and it's like the cockroach at the end of the apocalypse. As everything shuts down, the Spirit Halloween 
rises. And like, there's just like something very dystopian, but very funny. And also like, it's all these things simultaneously. Like it's also inspiring. It's like, oh, here's one thing that like Halloween is coming. Like that's something that we can be excited about. And I've always loved Halloween. I've always tried to like either like I, my band used to do Nightmare Before Christmas for Halloween. We always try to do big theatrical shows around Halloween. And so like, I don't know, I was especially after that year, I was excited by the prospect of Spirit Halloween opening and just wrote this song on a whim. And they, the big part of the joke of that first song was I was charging them. Uh, well, I don't remember what it's in the lyrics. $100,000 or whatever per thousand retweets or something. Yeah. $1,000 per 100 retweets. And it got like 10,000 retweets. So they owed me $100,000. But they Venmoed me. They didn't Venmo me $100,000, but they did Venmo me some money. And they basically said like, hey, we want to do more. Like we want to do something else. And initially I was like, I don't know. Like, I think the reason this works is because like you guys weren't really, as soon as they're in on the joke, it gets much trickier to try to make something that resonates with people was my worry. But they were really cool about letting me just do whatever I wanted to. And they gave me all those $100,000 worth of animatronics to fill my house with. And I did get to keep them, but I'm in the process of moving. So now I'm trying to get rid of most of them. To give folks an idea of what this looks like, I mean, it's like a like a skeleton Santa and stuff like this. Yeah, yeah. There's literally, there's probably eight of them and they're big. They take up a lot of space. <laughs> so Nick, one more question for you. I mean, as we mentioned, Dan Bongino has been kind of amused to you. I mean, his name is, I'm sure, pretty nice to rhyme against and it has a, a good number of syllables in it. I saw relatively recently you had a song sort of addressing Dan Bongino and thanking him for helping you win a Webby Award. Have you heard anything from Dan Bongino? No, I haven't heard anything from him, but if you have contacts at HBO, I'd love if you could put me in touch because I do think there has been a conspiracy against me led by Dan Bongino. That song had like over a million views. It had like many retweets. I don't know how many retweets it got, but it's flagged as like sensitive material. I don't know how familiar you guys are with that on Twitter, but like when a video is flagged as sensitive material, it like significantly diminishes its reach and it, it just kind of messes up. Like when you, when people quote tweet it, like it, it doesn't show up in a lot of people's feeds and you can't see the quote tweets. I've heard tell that Dan Bongino has like these troll farms. I would bet money that he was able to mass report that tweet because I don't know why else it would have been flagged for sensitive material. He is extremely thin skinned. That was one of the things that was interesting about it is because I, that was maybe a reason that I did it is because I saw he is constantly fighting with people around this time on Twitter. Blocking them immediately too, yeah. Yeah, right. So I kind of thought like, oh, this could be a fun thing where I kind of get in a feud with Dan Bongino. And he never once <laughs> acknowledged it. He never blocked me. I think he just like was f quietly fuming and had his troll farms massively report it for no reason. And the one little bit of acknowledgement that I did receive, and this is a little bit convoluted, and it came a year and a half later when I released this song, I Am a Persecuted Man. The first line is, I tried to get Twitter verified. They denied my request in 120 seconds, which is true. And the second line is, I tried to politely invite Dan Bongino to my show, but he won't address my message. And what that is referring to is I made, it's probably the video you were talking about, Will, I made this video inviting Dan Bongino to come see me perform at the Bowery Barnum in New York City. And I think his name's Philip Bump, reporter at the Washington Post, re-quote tweeted it and tagged Dan Bongino and said, Dan, this is very, very important that you watch this. 
And then Dan Bongino quote tweeted that tweet and said something along the lines of like, this is your media, folks. This is what's important <laughs> to the, the unbiased media. Humorless as ever, of course. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, exactly. So he definitely is aware. And I mean, there's no way he couldn't be aware. Oh, I think you're right. Okay. Well, Nick, thank you so much for joining us. Again, that's Nick Lutzko. He's on Twitter at Nick Lutzko. That's L-U-T-S-K-O. And he's also on YouTube under the name Nick Lutzko. Nick, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah. Thanks for having me, guys. All right, so I think now we've come to Fresh Hell, the weekly segment where Will tells us something truly twisted. People here on Fever Dreams, we love the gear report. We talked about the Cux box, the sort of mystical box that creates a new internet. We've talked about the Freedom Phone, of course. But now we're going to get into something called an energy enhancement system. And I got to say, I wish this thing had a crazier, kind of a catchier name, because this is one of the craziest things I've ever covered. So here's the deal. So this is a device that is supposed to cure cancer. It's supposed to, quote unquote, cure autism. It's supposed to cure basically every medical ailment you could have. But Andrew, we have a picture here in the document. Can you describe what the energy enhancement system is, what it appears to be to you. It looks like a mysterious sort of onyx-like box that's extremely large that you can fit in the middle of a living room. And it's got a bunch of television screens that have sort of that almost glitchy looking footage, like multicolored, not really forming anything, but clearly your TV's glitching out in the middle of watching Fox News. And on top of it, it looks like some kind of orb, I guess, with a green dot in the middle. That's just a decoration. Yeah. I mean, it surprise you. <laughs> it's a couple computer monitors, essentially, right? And there's sort of this like black box behind it. So, this is the in conspiracy theory communities. There has long been a quest for an item known as a med bed. Not med ved, not Michael med ved, but med bed. So, this is a device that is supposed to be basically like the med bed is imagined as sort of a tanning bed that will cure all your diseases for sure and maybe it's like a from aliens maybe it's from nikola tesla plays a big role in these communities who knows but now jfk jr it may be jfk jr invented it right exactly but more recently QAnon people and other conspiracy theorists and sort of some new age people have embraced this idea of the energy enhancement system as better than the med bed this is sort of the cure for all diseases diseases in the world. So it's basically these black boxes with screens in front of them that play static. And when I saw this thing that people were buying this stuff, and would you believe, Andrew, that so people, what you do is you set it up in each corner of your room, ideally your bedroom, and then the static, they're supposed to send out these waves according to Nikola Tesla's designs. But would you believe that sort of the recommended dose of this is enough screens that it costs you $120,000 and people are buying this stuff? Yeah, of course. Well, we were saying before about all the election conventions, the election fraud conventions, just I feel, I feel like you put something in front of QAnon people or diehard true believers and you say all the right words. It's kind of like the wellness movement, honestly. You say all the right keywords about what it's going to solve. And if somebody like Tesla was behind it or something or JFK Jr., you could pretty much sell any product to these people. It's definitely a grift that a lot of people are missing out on. It's sort of a fascinating device because this is, I first became aware of this thing because it was embraced by some QAnon people. And I was looking at, they were showing, oh, I got the energy enhancement 
management system set up in my home. And it's, it's like a video of a, it's kind of a, a dour looking living room. And then it just has computer screens stacked up in every corner, blasting static. And it's like, even looking at this picture, I feel like I'm going insane. It is the worst possible interior decoration you could have. Like, it's like you had like a clockwork orange video just constantly running in your home. You can't look away from it. So this is the quote unquote invention of a woman named Sandra Rose Michael. And she's been peddling this thing since the 90s. But more recently, in the past year or so, she's linked up with some kind of new age conspiracy theorists who say they're in the, in the pay of a network called The Light System, which is a group of humans and non-humans. They don't exactly get too much into that, but has the best intentions for the world. And so one thing they're trying to do is get Sandra's system out there. But it's sort of interesting because people are dropping like big bucks on this thing. You can also buy like charged stones for 200 bucks that supposedly have been sitting in front of the static for a while this thing has been set up in like i think she has like 20 centers in the united states where it's just some random room in a strip mall with these screens running people will pay a hundred dollars for let's say two hours in front of the screens and then there are these kind of plaintive stories online of people saying like oh geez my dad has cancer sure is expensive but it'll be worth it when it's all cured and so this lady meanwhile collects the big bucks but i looked into this and there's sort of a dispute over who invented it there's another fellow who claims he invented it and said it's just a computer program, which I would say it obviously is. It looks like a gamer setup. It looks like a rig that some kid has in his room where he can play Call of Duty on four different screens. Yeah, this is his strap in and fire up battlefield. His gamer chair infested with ants, yeah. So, I mean, this is just such a, for me, I think this just summed, summed up where these kind of quack medical cures are. Another sort of interesting thing for me is this woman, Sandra Rose Michael, who claims to be, I mean, she has a really funny list of credentials. In my line of work, when you get someone who has a bunch of wacky credentials, I mean, it's like, oh boy, we got a story here. So she claims to be a knight. It's like the knight of the order of the Orthodox religion of Malta or something. She also claims to be a Hawaiian kahuna. There's some really quality titles here, but she also more recently recently as she tilts into courting QAnon people, stuff like that. She claims the deep state has tried to assassinate her multiple times. Unfortunately, she did not get back to me on a list of assassination attempts so I could look into this. I think overall, this just sums up the thriving community of people grifting off of conspiracy theorists. And I think people, we had a, the conspirituality guy on a few weeks ago. And particularly, I think that overlap between conspiracy theories and kind of free-floating Trumpism and wellness, where those two areas cross over, I think is a very ripe one for people to make a buck off of. Yeah. Also, by the way, looking at the image of Sandra Rose Michael, I was just thinking, and also you describing her ever-shifting credentials, if The Sopranos was shot today, Janice Soprano would be selling these products or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> definitely the energy here. Instead of Buddhism or she got into some wellness products, it would be peddling Medbed or this energy enhancement systems, Tonium. You're right to say peddling because Nevada fined her for fraudulent business practices, not because this thing is obviously fake, but because essentially she was really pushing a woman to buy one. And then when the lady did, and then she put a deposit down and then Sandra demanded the whole money and all this kind of stuff. And so it's a very, I think, fly by night operation, but one that, I mean, once you see these things, Things and you Google them, you're like, wait, they have outlets in nearly every state and people are just going and sitting in front of these screens. It's a bizarre world. But, you know, look, maybe you can't swing 120 grand for the full system at home. Maybe you can't even swing 60 grand for half the system. But the good news is Sandra Rose Michael has other medical cures as well. And I would say the highlight is that she recommends bathing in borax, the caustic cleaner. And I looked this up. 
this is not something you should do. Apparently, it'll cause your skin to peel and all this awful kind of stuff. But they really come loaded down with a lot of quacker. Yeah, and this that's like the anti-vaccine police guy who converted a car into a police, like a mock police car to go police the vaccine people or whatever. And then he would, but then it turned out he was going around like peddling, you should drink your own piss to everybody. And he <laughs> kind of became an icon in that world for being connected to some doctor from Nevada or whatever, who former chiropractor who decided to get into piss drinking as a medical field. What a vibrant culture we have as a country. <laughs> <laughs> what a great country. Yeah. <laughs> On that note, let's wrap up this episode of Fever Dreams from The Daily Beast. In future installments, we'll also be speaking to some amazing guests at The Daily Beast and beyond, from politics to popular culture. We hope you'll subscribe to us on your preferred podcast app and share the show on social media and at your family dinner table. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Will Summer and Kelly is at Kelly Weil. That's W-E-I-L-L. Come say hi. This podcast is produced by Jesse Cannon with music by Brian DeMeglio. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.